Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, February 9th. Today we have an interview with Brad Freeman, uh, yeah. sort of our age, good investor. I like his stuff on Twitter. He writes for The Motley Fool, a lot of fun, uh, engaging conversation. But before we get to that, we have our stories for the week. What are you talking about? Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, you know, um, I don't know. A lot of news out there that people have been following. But there was a good interview with Stan Drunkenmiller, who is one of probably my favorite modern investor after Buffett. Uh, so he had a lot of good insights. And I thought we'd talk about what he said in relevance to, you know, the markets over the next few years. Um, so, yeah. Okay, and I'll be talking the Hindenburg short report. My new story is called Hindenburg versus Chamath. Uh, could be Hindenburg versus Clover, however you want to say it. Uh, but as always, then we have current state of FinTwit, which is interesting. Um, hot water, buy, sell, hold, and anecdotal evidence. But sales pitch time. Our friends at uh, 7invest, you can use our code CCM at checkout. You get $10 off. It's only $17 mm-hmm. typically. So now you've got $7 your first month. It's great. And you know um, what I'm going to do is look up currently what their returns are. They have any, they've been around for, what, 11 months now? So almost a full year. And their yeah, average yeah. return, 77%. The S&P 500's return of 21%. So they're doing quite well. Yeah. Excited to see who their new analyst is going to be. It's got to um, be someone. <laughs> gotta have seven it's going to be someone yeah they do have to have seven they put the seven and seven invest uh but yeah i mean okay. the returns speak for themselves for uh, that team over there all right here you go welcome to chit chat money on this show hosts ryan henderson and brett schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing as a quick reminder chit chat money is a ccm media group podcast Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. I'm going to kick things off. I've got Hindenburg versus Chamath. So uh, if you've been paying any attention to this, uh, I guess we could call it a debacle, but Hindenburg Research. Debate. debate yeah. Uh, Hindenburg Research, they tend to do some like, they're like investigative investing, I guess is a nice way to say it, but they- uh, They took down Nikola, so. Yeah. They, well, <laughs> that company's still trading at $10 billion valuation. They took down Trevor Milton. Their due diligence is a lot deeper than the individual investor. Uh, they are going out, getting, you know, calling people, former employees, uh, customers, trying to sort of find darkness, I guess, uh, in some of the businesses. And so they released a pretty scathing uh, short report on Clover Health, which was a recent social capital SPAC. Uh, Hindenburg, they said they've been investigating Clover for about four months leading up to it, uh, leading up to the SPAC. Uh, and they can't, they claim Clover misled investors when selling equity to the public. So the quote from the Hindenburg report says, critically, Clover has not disclosed that its business model and its software offering called the Clover Assistant are under active investigation by the Department of Justice, which is investigating at least 12 issues ranging from kickbacks to marketing practices to undisclosed third-party deals according to a civil investigative demand similar to a subpoena that we obtained. Yeah, you gotta you gotta disclose that. I mean, right there, that's just a giant red flag. Yeah, and says uh, so. I guess if you don't know what Clover Health does, I really didn't. Uh, but they are apparently like a patient-centered data platform, so it organizes all the medical info. Um, that's you know 
most people probably know more about the business than I do, but there were a lot of accusations in this report. Uh, I'll go through a few of them. Uh, most of the sales are driven by an undisclosed related party deal and misleading marketing targeting the elderly. Uh, so apparently, one of the former employees said that the sales, most of the sales are generated by an outside brokerage firm controlled by Clover's head of sales. So they say it's an independent outside brokerage firm. Um, and they don't even mention, I, I believe they don't even mention the firm. They just say that their software is best in class and that's why they have all these sales. Um, but the former head of sales reportedly tried to cover this up by putting the brokerage firm under his wife's name, um, uh, which is a bit of a red flag. Uh, they're hitting all the, uh, basis here yeah and then they also have a subsidiary that was barely mentioned called seek insurance seek makes no mention of clover on its website they even say on the website we don't work for insurance companies we work for you despite being owned by clover uh an insurance company so another bit of a red flag there and then they interviewed some doctors and former employees and one of the doctors stated the software is embarrassingly rudimentary and a waste of time, but they they pay the doctors to use them, so they use them. Um, and they say explicitly that they don't do that. So another red, red flag. And then Chamath came out with a response. Clover came out with a response too. But So um, just explain for anyone that doesn't know because why he is you know, in so, a relationship here. Yeah, Chamath runs Social Capital. He's been doing a lot of SPACs, which is, uh, I guess, an alternative way to take a company public. You get the the, the sponsor, which in this case is Chamath or his uh, operation, company. Social yeah. Capital. They have different subsidiaries, but uh, they get a bunch of fees to take them public, and then they can resell that equity to the public. So they're kind of giving it uh, their... They're blessing I'm it almost, in, air, yeah. in air quotes, but they're taking companies. They're giving companies to the retail investor before the investment banks. That's they're trying to democratize that process, um, but it feels rushed. Rushed, I guess, in some cases, and maybe exploited uh, in certain cases. But well, the fee, the fees are large. The fees are large. Yeah, yeah and so. Uh, Tremoth, obviously, he said he did his due diligence and he put a lot of work in. I guess and uh, well, one, so, one pager. <laughs> Yeah, and they're selling. I mean, they're selling. They're reselling stock to the public, essentially. Um, and so, if you don't disclose anything, obviously, that's illegal. It's criminal. Um, and so, he stated uh, basically a rebuttal. And I have one quote here. It says, "In foregoing new ground and being part of a regulated industry, Clover expects to receive requests for information from governmental entities." I don't think an ongoing investigation, DOJ investigation, is just. A request for info. Maybe the FDA or something like that, you know, the healthcare, Medicare, stuff like that. You'd expect that regularly, but not uh, the Department of Justice, right? Yeah, and it's either way, you should disclose it. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah, you should definitely have to disclose that. Um, and he goes on to say that he wishes that Hindenburg had contacted him or Clover before putting this out to the public, which is sort of a bad sign. It felt, the response felt super vague. Um, I was expecting him to, you know, come out and say these are all false allegations or something like that, but it really focused to be. It seemed to be more focused on the accuser, not the accusations, which is a red flag in my opinion. Uh, that is what Trevor Milton did, and we know how that ended. Um, the famous Instagram live, right? That's when I was gone this summer that the whole thing went down. But there was like the famous, right? Yeah, when he, he just, answered questions from investors or whatever. He just took to Instagram live and said, <laughs> you know. Uh, People that short are bad. They don't provide anything of to the world, which 
if this is a lie and they're exploiting not only uh, uh, investors but potentially elderly people, um, th this shows why shorts exist. Yeah, and Hindenburg isn't even shorting Clover because they understand. I think they were saying like you know markets are kind of crazy right now, right? So they didn't even yeah. short it. This is kind of what a short report would be like. But it, I love following short sellers. I love following Chanos, Mark Cahodes, all the other ones down below because they are that filter uh, to yeah. help. You know, like if they can filter out a company like Clover Health, that gives me more confidence that the companies I'm investing in are, are you know on the up and up. Whose side are you on here? I guess uh, I don't know if, if I'm on a if side. If you're the judge, um, did the short report? It was pretty comprehensive. No, the combination with the DOJ investigation and the seek insurance thing, I think the seek insurance thing was the biggest, like, whoa, like, okay, like, they clearly lie on the website and they're lying to their customers. I mean, that's not, I, I mean, that one's not even refutable. So, and, that one makes me a little queasy. And they've had, I believe it's three COOs, three CFOs, two general counsels in the last four years. That's always a red flag. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah, I mean, this brings back to, you know, the SPACs. We kind of, we talk about it and we talked about it specifically with Miles last week. We were like, well, you know, the SPACs will be great in the long run because more companies public, it'll be great. They'll all get audited eventually. But we kind of are in the camp that 90% of these things are pretty much BS. Yeah. So, for the time being, is I think it's a clear example of why we here... Uh, just totally are avoiding SPACs at all right now. At now least maybe in the early in, years, yeah. Yeah, now maybe in three years if some of these companies are doing fine, whatever, you know, check yeah. them out then. But until they get a fully audited proxy in 10K, I mean, I'm out. Like, yeah. All right. Well, that was my news story. What do you have? Okay. So this wasn't really news, but uh, I'm calling it insights from the Druck, who is probably my favorite investor that's, you know, not Buffett, like I said before. I think if I would have re-ranked, you know, my top three investors of all time, I forgot about Ed Thorpe as well. I'd probably go Buffett, Druckenmiller, Ed Thorpe. Those would probably be my three. I think that's Thorpe's really good. solid. Thorpe is one of the most but he, underrated. He really didn't have – his career was short. Yeah, but he's doing it privately now. Is he still doing it? Yeah, it's just not open to outside capital. Yeah, they had the whole thing with the, you know, that uh, the other fund in like New Jersey was doing bad, but that's a whole other thing. But – Drunken Miller was on with Goldman Sachs. For some reason, Goldman Sachs has a YouTube channel that's got a lot of quality content. It's kind of weird that they would be doing it, but it was a 20-minute discussion with Goldman, um, and he had a lot of quotes from it that I thought would be kind of good springboards to maybe talk. We can talk about some for a little bit, some for a lot. Um, so he said, one, his current framework, one framework, excuse me, is one word, buckle up. He says, I've been a CIO since 1978, which that's very long. Yeah. <laughs> That's 42 years and he's been investing since the early 70s and he says, I've been a CIO since 1978 and this has been the wildest cocktail I've ever seen. Does that make you, what are your thoughts on that? Just a little, making you nervous or uh, cautious? Uh, I'll keep going. Okay. Just go through sort of all the quotes and we can talk about it after. Okay. Uh, next quote, our current economic recession was five times as large as the average one in the United States but happened in 25% of the time. Yeah. Well, we experienced that. That, was, that. that did happen. In three months, we've added more to the deficit than the last five recessions combined. Uh, that one was pretty 
eye-opening too. It says, Asia has defeated the virus and is not barred from their future. The U.S. is the opposite. We are losing to the virus, although, you know, the recent weeks, whatever, we've been doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. But we've also barred from our future with, you know, all the deficit spending. He said, we may increase this record stimulus in combination with the greatest pent-up demand since the 1920s. That can make the world look extremely different than it is today. You want to stop here? Any thoughts on that one? Sure. Okay. So first of all, the recessions, or not, sorry, not the recession stuff, the inflation stuff, I'll never have a grasp on. I really won't because. You mean stimulus and deficit stuff? Yeah. I have no, I would always imagine when I hear some of the numbers that come out. So five times, whatever it is, we spent more, uh, than the last five recessions combined, that would well. The would, economic contraction was five times larger. Yeah, but then it says in three months we added more to the deficit than the last five recessions combined. Yeah, so in combination with that, yeah, it just feels like when you hear the headline numbers, inflation alarms go off in your head. But then there's all this modern monetary theory stuff going on that's like inflation doesn't exist. We've been trying, and yeah. inflation's been lower than we wanted, and so. I just have no expertise on it, and I really, I don't, it doesn't really adjust. Yeah, my I mean, philosophy. it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to hear someone like Drucken Miller talk about that, and you kind of have to have that expectation when you're investing. All right, I mean, if inflation comes, if it goes up to like four to six percent or something like that, you know, you have to your porf- you should be ready for that for your portfolio. But it's not something that we can. The way we invest, where it's not something that we're going to be like, all right, well, now we're going to move all our things into shorting the U.S. dollar or some yeah. stuff like that. That's the other. It's kind of it's it's good to you know if you understand that that could happen, it, it won't surprise you if it does. The other thing about this stuff is, I feel like a lot of the famous fund managers always go on and talk about how difficult or in a shitty spot we are, and then their portfolio doesn't reflect it at all. So I feel like taking this with a grain of salt. Well, he said, I mean, he said in his portfolio, he basically owns a lot of stuff. He owns the basically Fang. He owns uh, cloud names. He's big on cloud, which we'll get at. And it's another quote here. He owns a bunch of commodities as his inflation hedge, which is not something we do, but that's something he likes to do. So, I mean, I think his money is where his mouth is. But we'd have to let him 13 Yeah, but saying like this is, I don't know, like – Sound the alarms on the recession, but then 50% of my holding is Fang? Like, Well, if you watch the video, he wasn't really sounding the alarm. He was just trying to con- contrast how like, all right, we have this huge contraction and it's unprecedented and you have all the stimulus, so you have to take it into like two sides. Like, all right, well, on one hand, the recession is doing really bad for the, the actual economy, but on the other hand, there's going to be the stimulus and pent-up demand. You can see the vaccine in the next few months. So it's kind of hard um, to yeah, look at that situation and say, all right, well, there's a ton of different outcomes over the next few years. Yeah, I do like the idea of a bunch of pent-up demand. We've talked about this. Well, I, everyone understands there's pent-up demand, but combination with the record stimulus, you don't know. I mean, it just seems like there's a, a lot of volatility like within um, – not just the economy, but like cultural trends or whatever. There's just going to be a lot of change over the next year, few years. I know this summer, no one's going to be standing inside. Seems like, I don't know, like even if people are like, all right, Maybe. stay home or whatever, like I don't think people are going to actually do that. They're going to start traveling. They're going to do what they want to do, right? I would hope, I guess. But I don't know. I don't know if restrictions will ease up that fast. 
Uh, well, I guess, yes. I guess that's another thing that we can't control. Yeah. Um, but all right, keep yeah. going. All right, next quote. He said, and this is kind of one on the inflation. He says, my overarching theme is that inflation will be higher relative to what policymakers think. But he kind of talked about, and this is, again, this is something that's out of our expertise. He said that he's using that where he's going long commodities, right? But he's also... Oh, gosh. He's also long. He also owns really short-term U.S. treasuries or something like that to kind of show like, all right, I just don't want to have any exposure to this inflation because if, you know, the Fed keeps lowering interest rates, keeps them artificially low and, uh, gosh, what else would they do? And, and, you know, the treasury yield stays super low, then, then the inflation might not be there. But, again, that's really not something we care about. I'll go on to the next one. He says, you mentioned the cloud. I'd say we're in the third or fourth inning. Pre-COVID, we were in the first. But during COVID, we transitioned to the third or fourth. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm not sure that's super unique. I think we saw that come out of like Sundar Pichai uh, early on during COVID. He's like, this is accelerating 10 years worth of adoption in a few months. Well, yeah, but what about the third or fourth inning part? You know, like... That's kind of interesting that someone like that would think. And it's kind of impressive that he's, what, like 70 years old and he can understand. I would hope that when I, whatever, in 2050, if I'm still doing something like this, that I could understand what the cloud is. Third or fourth, I guess a good representation of it might be uh, Bezos stepping down and having the AWS guy take over as CEO. Yeah, maybe. You know, because that's kind of saying like this is the main this is what the most important part of our business is now. Yeah. So maybe. Uh, I mean, if it's there, I'm not sure they would do that in early, 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 early innings. Uh, and they definitely want to do that in late innings. Yeah. And I can't, I think third or fourth inning is probably correct. Cause if you look at the numbers, I think cloud penetration is only, oh gosh, it's in between 15 and like 40%. I don't know the exact number, but we're definitely not majority cloud yet. And it seems like 90% of things will be in the cloud from what I've read. Are we really not majority cloud? It feels uh, I can like look it up. No, I point. think you're just thinking that as an investor. But the I, I honestly seen that or we're not very far away. Huh. Or sorry, sorry, we're not very far in. Like if you look at the investment where all the IT spend is, I don't think the majority hasn't moved to the cloud, but the prediction is it's going to. And it kind of just makes me think, wow, you know, AWS is or Azure if it was a separate company, they're they're probably gonna be the two of the largest businesses in the world and that and it's yeah, definitely priced in but it's not it feels like it's almost like a guarantee been saying that for five years well it's no they haven't been saying I mean, that for five, five years but you know for like the last even leading into covid people were like you know i would love to own aws on its own it's gonna be yeah, a monster i think you're just think looking through your worldview because we are trying to look at it through an investor's lens but now i think that's ex- very accepted where we were talking to people that you know thought that or whatever aws is going to be the biggest company but now i think that that's kind of the common knowledge that this yeah. company is going to be the biggest one in the world yeah you can say that all right keep going okay next one uh all right he talked about how you know he said the thing about how asia has been doing quite well where if you just look in general, one, they defeated the virus, and two, they didn't have to take on a lot of debt for their country. So that's kind of a combination of, all right, those are doing a lot better than the Western countries. And he says, you know, my own name's in Taiwan, South Korea. And I thought this was just a funny anecdote. He said, like, the rest of the world, we own Sea Limited in Singapore. So I was like, all right, well, everyone does, <laughs> I guess. Every hedge fund does. Uh, he says, I've never used VAR it's very unsophisticated. I watch my PL and if it starts acting in a strange manner, my antenna goes up. 
that's kind of it sounds it's weird to think that you know he's one of the most experienced investors in the world and all he's doing is just like everyone else he's watching his profit and loss statement and if something strange is happening all right let's investigate yeah i've always it feels like people I don't know. Shouldn't you be focused on the companies you own in your portfolio and then sort of manage it from there out instead mm-hmm. of like trying to take a worldview and let it reflect your portfolio? Yeah. And it, VAR, which people might not know what it is, it's called value at risk and it's got a, probably a lot of quantitative stuff and it's very complicated, but it's called a statistic. It's a statistical measure that is used by something like an investment bank to estimate the potential of future losses. This is kind of the big thing in that movie, The Margin Call. Where they're looking at the you know the VAR, right. and it's like oh wait no we calculated this wrong our risk parameters on this you know if whatever housing cl- bonds whatever four or five percent go down then the whole thing goes down. I just think that stuff's sort of really overrated. Like, I mean, sure, yeah, you can look at historical trends, but it, you can't predict the future. And it's like all right, just because historical volatility was super low, all right, does that mean you can lever up eight times? Uh, I don't know. That feels a bit. This just feels way too risky for me. You hear about the people that find like big mac, big like hidden macroeconomic bubbles that could take something down, like the Big Short margin call, like those movies. You hear about them because they're the success stories. But I feel like there's probably a lot more people that have tried to call top on some macroeconomic bubble or something small that they think is going to have ripple effects throughout the economy, and they've just been outright wrong. So what, so what are you saying in relation to VAR? I don't know. Just don't take. Just focus on your PNL, like Druckenmiller says. Focus on your own. Well, yeah, I mean portfolio that you have, and not the macroeconomic world. Oh yeah, VAR. I mean, use, having too much reliance on statistical measures or VAR or whatever, looking at historic volatility, all that stuff is what led to the taking too much risk. Where these big, you know, big short people can come in. So it's like. Yeah, I mean, if you're an investment bank, I don't know. It's just, uh, I think it's just an excuse to use leverage, but again, it's a little over our heads there. Yeah, keep going. Uh, All right, last quote, and this one is, again, it's a little more macro. He says, the reason I'm worried about Western capitalism versus Asian capitalism, and this is kind of the big theme of the talk, is that we don't practice it anymore. He says, the Fed has bastardized the most important metric in the world which is the cost of money, and we also have crony capitalism. And we've talked about crony capitalism. We invest in crony capitalism, alter group, full disclosure. That's something we own, um, was, which is regulated a regulated monopoly, basically. But Yeah, inadvertently. Well, uh, it's still a regulated monopoly, basically. Isn't crony capitalism like you're working in tandem with the government? Are they? I mean, I, they kind of. No, I would, I would say that, like, they were accidentally insulated because yeah. the like marketing practices and all that crap had the effect regulators weren't hoping for. Yeah, I think they're. I mean, I think they're quite happy. I mean, they got to go to court every year. They yeah, spend like seventy million a year on legal costs. I, I think they're quite happy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I they're, say they're working they're, in tandem with the government. Well, I thought that was what crony capitalism refers to. Is like sort of. Yeah. Yeah entangled into yeah regulatory it's it's, i think in general it's kind of regulatory capture you know feels more like like uh uh, government credits uh government credits for yeah for energy and stuff like that i mean in general that the government credits for um you know fracking and energy and stuff they've done i think it's hundreds of billions 
in that type of thing, you know, for the Permian Basin down in Texas, and those companies have never turned turn a profit. I mean, yeah. But what about the relation to the cost of money? Now, that's kind of like keeping, in, you know, I don't know. What yeah. does it mean by that? So, the interest rates. So, the cost of money, it's like, well, all right, what are the interest rates on the bonds you're looking at? Now, you see that with a lot of companies these days. I'm looking at a lot of growth companies getting convertible notes with 0% interest due in 2025. They're taking advantage of that. I'm looking at a lot of companies, again, like Altria Group, refinancing their bonds to get a way lower interest rates than they used to have. I think they just did less than 3% interest on a 2032 bond, which is crazy. Um, I don't know. It seems like they're trying to artificially do this. They're trying to prime the pump. You know what I mean? And yeah, can, can they do it? Just, I don't know what the outcome is going to be. Yeah, that's it's that sounds... Yeah, it does sound like they are incentivizing like extreme borrowing, but I don't know how that ends. Well, they're incentivizing leverage, and I think you just have to look at it from an individual company's standpoint. All right, is this company over-levering too much? Or if they're using leverage, do they have the consistent cash flows to pay it off? Or are they taking advantage of these low interest rates again, doing really cheap convertible notes or trying to refinance you know, with lower interest rates? I think that it's not a way to look at like, all right, we don't want to like, you know, a gold bug perspective, which we think is kind of a little illogical or not using common sense where they're like, all right, well, they're just going to print our way to blah, 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 you know, crypto is the way, you know, stuff like that. But I think if you look at it on an individual company perspective, right, you will look at, all right, who's actually taking advantage of this and who's over, who's over levering themselves. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say, I don't know, it's just on a company-by-company company basis, right? Like, yeah, you, it doesn't affect my portfolio, I guess, is the way to, and I'm not even sure I would make changes to my portfolio even if I knew or had a better idea of what the outcome would be. Well, outcome of what? Like this zero interest rate environment. I'm not sure, I don't know, it just feels like the entire discussion somewhat over our heads uh, and without well, any insight on the Well, it's not, I don't think it's hard to understand. The cost of money lowers. That's yeah, but what's the, yeah, but what what outcome does that lean towards? Okay, well, again, I say Altria Group, a company we own, their finance team is refinancing a lot of their loans, right? So they used to have interest rates on a lot of this stuff. Some of it was even at like 9%, if I'm remembering correctly, and they're doing tender offers to replace those Right, yeah. selling it back to the public. So they're taking advantage of that. I don't think it's a... I see what's happening, but I don't see whether that leads to a better or worse outcome for the company in the end. Well, I, I mean, they have... They get easier... Yeah, they have easier financing, but at the same time, there's going to be companies that are levering up because of this that shouldn't be levering up. So I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I don't see what outcome it provides. No, I think it's not something... The framework isn't the cost of money. The framework is looking at the companies. I mean, again, if they have so to pay less... So it's a good thing. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's you look at it, all right, is this company paying less than interest payments, right? Or are they going to keep more of it and return it to shareholders? But then if you look at it on a growth perspective, if they're able to raise a convertible note due in 2025 and basically get $500 million in free money, that's going to actually dilute shareholders and then reinvest into their business. Someone like Peloton's doing that. Now they're taking more of a risk maybe. I mean, I think you just got to so look at here's, it. Okay. So then... My question is, what's the point? Because he's talking about it as like a bad thing. Well, on a, yeah, because he's looking at it as a macro investor. He's got billions and billions of dollars. So basically his wealth is tied up into the American economy. 
Yeah, but he's making it sound like it's going to have poor implications. Oh, I mean, I, or maybe I'm maybe I'm mishearing the quote, but it sounds like he said we're he's worried about the it. most yeah, important yeah. metric in the world. Well, he's worried about in general over leveraging, right? For companies, okay, so there's a lot of companies, the bad side of this and the companies that we probably wouldn't own are these, what, quote, zombie companies like an airline that are taking on a bunch of debt, getting a bunch of money back from the government, you know, crony capitalism, right? Sure. All right, and they're not, they're not viable entities. If you're a zombie company, you can't pay your interest payments. Now, do we want those companies alive or is it actually a free market economy? That's kind of the tough question. Again, okay. from an individual let's, investment perspective, it doesn't really matter. But Yeah. Let's get to current state of FinTwit. Uh, did you have anything big this week? Okay. Well, I was going to ask about the Clover Health debate, but we already talked about that. All right. There's a fact from Morgan Housel that he tweeted that more SPACs were raised on Friday than in all of 2013. Any thoughts on that? Make you scared? Cautious? Mm. I think it's a net positive, but... Uh... Well, not sorry. There's going to be a lot of bad ones, but I mean, the end goal is that we have 50% more public companies, right? In like five uh, years? If it keeps up at this rate, yeah. But I don't know if that rate's going to keep up. It just it feels so bubbly in the short run. I just want to, I, I just, we are, I mean, we're on the same page, but we, we would never touch any of these. It seems like all these, I mean, we looked at what Oatly going public at. $10 billion at like just an absurd sales multiple. What about Dogecoin? What do you think of Dogecoin? <laughs> Dogecoin? I was big all over Twitter this week. Um, and frankly, there's nothing that makes me feel like worse for the retail guy than the richest people in the world touting it. Yeah, I mean, Even that, if, like, cause that stuff sucks. For some, I don't know, for a lot of people, it might be a joke or it might be ironic that Dogecoin does well, but a lot of dumb people might be. Uh, putting real money on it which whatever i guess that's their own problem but uh yeah i mean dogecoin the guy that made it he did in a few hours or something like that like eight years ago and he made it as a joke kind of as like all right look you can make a cryptocurrency whatever backed by dog and now it's taken on a life of its own i kind of have the framework that it's a meme backed currency so it's such a joke that people are going to take it seriously and it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean the price is going to go up. It doesn't mean it's going to go down. I mean, it's a pure speculative asset. It's, uh, it's fun to watch, but uh, it feels like, yeah, the rich people are taking advantage. That, the only, the only ma- malicious part is like what you said. The rich people are uh, kind of pumping and dumping it, it seems like. Yeah. Okay, so I saw a list of some of uh, the businesses that advertised during Tom Brady's first Super Bowl. I don't know if you saw this. Um, so I'll go through them. AOL, Blockbuster, Radio Shack, Circuit City, CompUSA, Sears, Hot Jobs, Yahoo, Voice Stream Wireless, Gateway Computers. Mm. Is it a bad omen to advertise during the Super Bowl? Well, that, I mean, the, that might be resulting because, I mean, Coca-Cola and Nike advertise every year, uh, you know, and people are probably, you know, searching for those bad companies. But I think it shows that, you know, capitalism and whatever the market is destructive like most companies fail so if you're betting on a company you got to think either a they're going to be along around a long time or you know you're getting a good price because historically unless somehow this time it's different the companies that are leading today like you know then it was aol yahoo won't be the ones leading in the future in the next decade so yeah okay but a little bit of a concern nintendo 
had a <laughs> they had an advertiser, and we we uh, do own Nintendo. Yes. So are we owning the AOL? <laughs> the Nintendo one was okay right I mean co- okay there's a difference between a company like um, what was there was like a Carvana competitor that was advertising that seems dumb Vroom. yeah that one seems dumb but if you're Coca-Cola companies that can't afford it no it's not necessarily you can't afford it but Ninten- Nintendo, Nintendo fits this category if you're trying to if your product is for everyone it's fine capital allocation Right, because Coca Cola just needs to have that market awareness of they're the brand, gives them that pricing power over the stupid Kroger one, or you, or if you just have tons and tons of cash and you don't need to put it elsewhere, yeah, or you don't need a bunch of money to reinvest to do well in the future. I guess that's sort of Nintendo, so I don't mind. Amazon does it all. They well, yeah, always that's, have the a, that's a, yeah, that's an example of uh, if you're product or service is for everyone or maybe for every family then a super bowl commercial can be worth it but if you're a spe- very specific product like what was their weather tech too i was like Man, they ran like three yeah weather tech look i get your brands high now that you're you know patriotic you know you're in the usa you never outsourced your stuff and you sounds like you have a good business going here but nah, no one really cares ah. sounds like you have high overhead costs and it <laughs> yeah. sounds like you don't have the kind of money to be running Super Bowl ads, but all right, yeah, that's all I had for current state of FinTwit. You got anything else? I did not. I was going to talk about Clover here if we didn't, if you didn't cover it. So, all right. Well, next we have an interview with Brad Freeman. Any highlights for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, we did talk about a SPAC here, SoFi. Uh, so yeah. I want to say f- fair warning: we are skeptical on you know companies like that, but SoFi is very interesting. Um, it's probably the most interesting SPAC. For sure. That I've looked at. Yeah, we, there is the stadium red flag that you name a stadium. But yeah, I mean, he goes, over, he goes over. He goes over. I mean, their numbers look great. The financials look great there. That that was probably the most interesting one. And then we talk about Boeing. Who? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, two, 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 yeah, two different companies, but two insightful discussions, I thought. Yeah. All right. Here you go. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? (sighs) All blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Today we are welcomed by Brad Freeman. Brad is a writer for The Motley Fool. He is a popular FinTwit presence. You probably recognize the name if you're on Twitter um, or you've read any of his articles. But I thought a unique place to start would just be your background to uh, kind of get through that. So why would you pick finance? I know you're you're pretty young, right? You're 23? Yeah, 23 years old. Okay. Uh, so why finance? Um, so an undergraduate, which was not that long ago, <laughs> Uh, I was in real estate pursuing that with internships and classes and um, all that fun stuff. And I just um, honestly found it kind of boring to be candid uh, and very important to me to enjoy work and enjoy uh, the, the 40 hours a week or whatever it is um, that I'm going to be spending my my life dedicating to work. So uh, just kept searching and and kind of kind of attracted to companies because they move a whole lot faster than buildings generally do. Um, and just kind of the, the free flowing nature of, of news constantly flowing, 
um, and seeing your, your ideas over a long period of time kind of come to fruition really, uh, really, I, I guess, excites me and, and doing it and researching and reading SEC filings and, and all that fun stuff that most people think of as kind of boring and nerdy that I thought real estate was boring and um, not, not, yeah, just boring. Um, and so investing to me doesn't really feel like work. So that, that long, long answer for your uh, short question is that, I guess. <laughs> No, that's good. And, and you write for The Fool now. When did you start doing that? Sure. So last April, started doing that. Um, so been about almost a year now. Okay. Shout out Molly Fool. <laughs> all right. Yeah. And I guess we're all three writers there now. Yeah. So fellow Molly Foolers. Big uh, foolish podcast. But let's get into your investing <laughs> process. That's uh, what people are probably here to listen about. Uh, how do you source ideas? Do you have any structured process you go through or is it more qualitative versus quantitative and maybe something like what metrics do you look at a lot? I know that's a lot of questions, but we can get into, you know, at least some of those. Sure. So, so for sourcing ideas, um, or I guess I'll start with uh, kind of investment philosophy uh, split into two buckets. Uh, and the effect of this is what a lot of people call a barbell approach. So the first bucket would be kind of, um, the deep value black swan companies, the, the companies dealing with kind of a crisis and, and generally um, not all that loved by markets. And for that uh, kind of just uh, watching CNBC's background all, all day long and existing in, in the financial news world, I uh, kind of come up with inspiration for ideas there. And, and then SEC filings are, are how I kind of develop those ideas. Uh, and, and what I'm looking for there, obviously the, the margin profile and, and the, the revenue side of things are going to look really bad. The balance sheet might look pretty bad, but just uh, what their what their kind of industry and what their environment looks like, what their competitive environment looks like, um, when when they recover or if they can recover, um, will they be in a position to continue on to pre whatever crisis they were dealing with? Um, and kind of industry compound annual growth rate or CAGR is a a, a key thing that I look at there. Um, and also their, their ability to access uh, funds, I guess, your credit markets or equity markets um, is, is important to me um, for bridging the gap. So, so, yeah, and I guess the other bucket would be what other people are kind of more interested in hearing about, uh, the, the high growth, young, dis- disruptive companies that fall into uh, that disruption bucket or legalization bucket. Um, so think sports gambling or cannabis um, exposure in both of those. And, and there I'm looking at revenue growth. I'm not looking for profitability, although that would be awesome. Um, but I am looking for, for margins um, to be improving rapidly. Uh, generally look more at the cash flow statement than the income statement. Uh, more interested in cash flow from operations and free cash than um, how good a CFO can make net income look on the bottom line. Um, so uh, I guess that's worth noting and, and yeah, so that's kind of rounds out the, the philosophy of how I operate. Yeah. Okay. So when you're looking at the growth companies, what things besides, you know, revenue growth are you looking for? Are you looking for a leverage for profitability? Are you caring about cash flow per share? I mean, you know, when you're looking at these, you're thinking, okay, they're unprofitable now, or they might be, you know, getting close to break even, but. Uh, what kind of things are you looking at on like a three or five year time horizon? Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's more so. So what the opportunity looks like, so total addressable market or serviceable addressable market um, where, where they are in terms of like their margin profile again on their, their 
like operating margin or cash flow from operations margin. And I'm not looking for that to be positive. I'm not looking for it to be impressive, like 40% for a Microsoft or something, but I am looking for it to be moving quickly, which, which kind of tells me that management is able to generate new demand and, and new interest off of their existing base of assets without solely needing to spend more and more and more money to do so. So yeah, that that's, I think more, that that's kind of the key driver of how I assess the quality of growth in companies. Okay. And uh, like position sizing, do you hop right into a five or 6% position or do you kind of build it up over time? How do you go about that? Sure. So, so I got split again between those two buckets. So for the kind of deep value I uh, have, so initially I'll do one and a half percent cost basis out of the holdings and then slowly dollar cost average in over time on weakness um, or, or just noise because I mean, it happens all the time in markets. Uh, so take that up generally to 3% on a full position. And then for the speculative, disruptive, high growth companies, it's starting off at a 1% cost basis and take that very slow, even more slowly up to 2%. Okay. And then what about how many uh, holdings do you have uh, over time? Do you have a range for that or does that not really matter to you? And uh, I guess we'll just answer that question first and then we can move on to the next one. Yeah. So I think 30 stocks and then some Bitcoin uh, small position there. Uh, number of positions isn't super important to me. I'm, I'm generally just looking for opportunities that I, can really get behind and 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 have conviction in through kind of all, all but inevitable tough times in the future. So however many positions I, I think of in that light, I'll own. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I write for The Motley Fool, so I'm able to allocate a lot of time um, to, to researching all these positions. So I definitely understand uh, the argument people have for um, 10, 15 positions. Any more than that, how can you even keep track? But I do. I love to nerd out on this stuff, as my Twitter handle suggests. So, uh, yeah, no, no cap for me personally. Okay, uh, and we're going to talk about two companies specifically, very different companies, uh, Boeing and SoFi. But we'll start with Boeing. I believe this is your largest holding, if I read your uh, Twitter portfolio update correctly. Uh, yeah. So, what's sort of your thesis there, just broadly? Because it's not a name a lot of Fin Twitters own. Sure. So. That that is kind of a double black swan event. Um, so kind of, I mean, the past eighteen months for this company, it's hard to imagine dealing with with a more negative news flow in terms of the two tragic crashes, in terms of the triple seven X delays, in terms of the COVID nineteen pandemic, just absolutely destroying air travel. Um, but but through all of that, uh, there, so it, it's a global duopoly, which I really which I really have a bias towards. Um, so, and, and the effect of that, I think, and, and Boeing and Airbus came out with this late last year was the 20, 20 year demand forecast is unchanged in terms of dollar amounts from this entire, this entire crisis and, and Boeing's backlog, it's taken a hit, but it still offers them several years of production. Once, once demand finally recovers and we can get these vaccines um, distributed, I have no clue when that's going to be, but, uh, but it's kind of a when, not if. And whenever that does happen and, and we can return to some kind of normal environment, Boeing will still be that global duopoly existing in, in a growth industry that was growing before COVID-19 and is supposed to re revert to growth at some point eventually in the future. Did you own them prior to the pandemic or did you sort of buy in on the bad news? Sure. So the one and a half percent kind of that I talked about was after that second really uh, tragic 737 uh, max crash and then filled out the position all the way down um, kind of 
that, that was that was not a fun few weeks. Um, but filled filled it up to three percent cost basis all the way down during the pandemic. Um, and yeah, it's it's now like you said, my largest position today. All right, and then the concern that a lot of people have with Boeing is the debt load and the pension liabilities. Um, I know that they. I don't have the exact numbers here, but does that factor into your thesis at all? Or do you think they'll be able to cover with that backlog? Sure. Um, and that's, that's definitely, that, that is the concern. So it's so really, really good uh, to, to highlight that. I think it's somewhere around 60 billion in long-term debt. Uh, so kind of two main concerns there is, can they, first of all, can they pay off the debt? It's currently a zombie company. It doesn't, I mean, they're, they're even, it doesn't cover interest expenses. Currently they have none. So and kind of the two hints that they can to me was the, the the way over subscription they had on that original debt deal of 20 something billion that they offered um, at the, in the heat of the pandemic. Um, they got a far lower interest rate than they were anticipating. It was seven times oversubscribed. Um, it could have been six times. It was six or seven, one of the two. Um, and then last week, they were able to take out another $9 billion to pay off some of their other debt at a far lower interest rate, um, part of a $13 billion debt deal. So the credit markets are telling you that they're, they, they have faith in the future existence of Boeing. They have faith in their ability to meet these kind of daunting um, li- liabilities. Um, and the other concern is uh, the EV enterprise value is going to recover a lot quicker than, than the market cap is before they pay off any of this debt. Uh, so it, it does put a lower ceiling on the equity value to the recovered equity value um, in the future, whenever that is. Again, I have no clue. It could be next year. It could be three years. Uh, but the key thing to, to know here is they were they were putting up 15 billion in operating cash flow at, at the peak of uh, their cloud. So before all this kind of um, sugar honey iced tea hit the fan. Uh, so the, the, while the debt load is cumbersome and will take a lot of t- a long time to pay off, several years, uh, the time horizon I kind of take with with companies like this is um, as long as it takes. Um, so kind of I mean for for Bank of America and the financial crisis, it was it, t- it took 12 years for me to exit that position. And, and I guess now uh, w- with Boeing, I'm anticipating holding this for a very long time. So I guess anyone listening uh, with kind of more of a, a trading philosophy I, I or, or, or short time horizon or, or looking for a quick pop, that's not at all what I, I kind of think here. I just think that the, the, the industry dynamics with having that global duopoly and the strong cash flow they had pre-pandemic and, and the really long-term forecast being unchanged, regardless of all this stuff that they've had to deal with, is, is it kind of gives me hope that they will be able to handle all this new credit and they'll be able to survive past long past this pandemic. Right. And yeah, it seems like if you're not a trader or anything like that, you have to have a really long-term timer as in for Boeing. Uh, oh. And an important part of that is the management. So they brought in new management, they fired or, you know, the old one resigned or however that works, but the management got let go. What are your thoughts on the management changes and the new team? Um, how are they doing? Yeah, I wasn't the biggest fan of them hiring a, a CEO from kind of an inside hire. Uh, the management team changed, but it, it didn't, it's not all that new. Uh, if, if that uh, makes sense, they're, they're all, they're all Boeing um, veterans. So I, I kind of took a wait and see approach there and, and I have liked how they handled the 737 max crisis. I mean, the old leadership was giving you pushback timelines of when the 737 was going to be back in the air. It seemed every other month and just 
kind of destroying any any sense of credibility they had. So I think him taking the position of this is not at all up to us. It's up to the FAA and it's up to other regulatory agencies is what he had to do. And I'm glad he did. So I definitely don't think he's a superstar yet. I mean, he might, I might think that in a couple of years, but kind of passing grade so far. What, uh, it's easy to sort of highlight the negatives with Boeing just because they're in such a hard time right now, but do you have any sort of growth opportunities or growth avenues that you think they could go for, or is it mostly just fill that backlog? Yeah. So the, the, Developed nations recovery is going to, I do think that will be a growth story at some point. I mean, I, I just, I looked it up while, while you were asking me the question. Um, so don't, don't, no one be impressed. I don't have this off the top, top of my head, but 3% compound annual growth rate for the av- aviation industry as a whole. So, so they, they'll, they'll benefit from that growth and from the refreshes that, that are definitely going to come, especially with, with the, all the delays that have happened to um, recycling old models from the pandemic. So I think that'll revert to growth. The, the developing nations are going to be the real growth story within the commercial aviation segment. Um, and then kind of within government services and, and defense, that'll, I, I think that'll be steady, but not, not a real growth story, more so a consistent cash flow provider. But th- there's a lot of venture capital projects within the firm that kind of go or fly under the gun. So electric planes, autonomous planes, um, drones, uh, they have a pretty sizable investment in Virgin Galactic. Uh, so, oh, so I really? think, yeah, it's, it's, it's 20 million up front, probably worth over hundred million now. So not nothing gigantic, but interesting to note. Um, so I think that the space economy that everyone is really excited about, I, I think Boeing is going to be a bigger part of that than, than people think that than people are giving them credit for. Uh, so maybe, if, maybe if Kathy Wood added, adds it to her ARK Invest Fund, then everyone will love it. But um, it'll become a momentum stock there we go yeah, exactly exactly a meme, a meme stock overnight um but but yeah i do think the core business is will be really strong it looks awful right now and there's no avoiding that but it will be really strong again at some point and and i think growth probably will come from that that space oriented part of the company okay and you mentioned this a bit before but the 737 max was the concern even pre-covid uh, do you think that concern is gone now? I know a lot of people probably don't follow it, you know, as much as it was when it was the center of the news. Um, or does that not matter at all going forward? Have they put that behind them? Yeah, I, I do think it'll take some time. Um, oddly enough, uh, the pandemic almost bought them some time uh, with with kind of earning back public trust when the demand's not really there anyway. Um, it's a, a, kind of a weird thing to say. And, and, and there's, again, no getting around how terribly they handle the Mac situation. Um, but I do think that public trust will come back. Um, some people, or I guess a large portion of flyers don't really know what model they're flying. Um, and, and then the rest of the people don't usually have a choice um, anyway. So I think I, I, I'm sure there will be some uneasy people on flights, but, uh, but I'm thinking that, um, that, yeah, it'll, it'll, hopefully enjoy a, a recovery once this is all over. I mean, the, the Ryanair CEO <laughs> talking about, like he was asked, do you want to, do you want us to rebrand the 737 max or do you, or should you think we should? And, and he said, I don't give a darn, uh, I use that word, what you call it. Um, just get it back in the air. So, so I think um, there's a big sigh of relief that it's back in the air and now Boeing can kind of recover with the rest of the aviation industry and with the rest of the, um, the recovery names that, that will hopefully find new life when this 
awful crisis pandemic is finally over. All right. Well, that was a good, do you have any more, Ryan? Yeah. I, um, I mean, I didn't jot this one down on the notes page or the questions we sent you, but do you think that they are too big to fail? Like, do you think the government would bail them out if they had, if air travel didn't recover or whatever, like one of the new strains stuck around and the vaccine didn't treat it and they had a bad four or five years? Do you think uh, government would feel forced to bail them out? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's not, it's not my favorite bull case, but it is a pretty good bull case, honestly, the too big to fail argument. I mean, it, it is, it is pretty vital to national security as a company uh, from the defense standpoint, from the, the commercial aviation standpoint. And, and also, I mean, so the federal government didn't bail them out, but I mean, the, the federal reserve did kind of open the floodgates and credit markets for them to capitalize on that gigantic debt deal that got them through all of this. Uh, and they, they were, they were one of the biggest beneficiaries of that. So, um, shout out Jerome Powell for getting, uh, Boeing through this crisis. But I, I do think that the too big to fail argument is valid for sure. Right. And it's, it kind of gives you that margin of safety, right? Where you, you think that whatever, how you feel about governments bailing you out, if you're an investor, it gives you that downside protection. Is that how you think about it? Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good way to put it. Okay. Uh, SoFi. Let's talk SoFi. Yeah, we'll get a more exciting name in here. Uh, <laughs> SoFi. They're in the news. I think they're spacking. Uh, so what's very exciting. Twitter? Which one is it? Yeah. Just, what's? Uh, it is IPOE. So it is a Chamath Palahapatia. I'm sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly, but it's it's one of his facts. Okay. okay. And what is SoFi? Um, is there any part or particular part of the business that you like uh, and why you're invested? Sure. So I'll start with. I'll start with what is it and then go for the favorite piece part because there definitely is a favorite piece. Um, so it started It started off as kind of, so it was some Stanford grads helping recent graduates connect to an alumni base, essentially. Um, and they, after that, became the first company to offer both private and federal student loan refinancing. Um, and, and they kind of, this product snowball continued until uh, where we are now, um, where they are trying to be the what they say, one-stop shop for all digital banking services, all, all financial services. So save, spend, borrow, invest, protect is their, um, is their saying or helping you keep your money, right? Yeah. And then, so what they call this, which is kind of fancy talk, I think, for land and expand is the financial services productivity loop. Um, so they're, they're aiming to wow customers with product one and cross-sell, feel better margins and, and justify more investment and growth. So it's Kind of a good, I think a good comparison is Lemonade and insurance, which I also own. So, yeah, I think that they're kind of approaching that industry um, in a similarly disruptive way. So, and kind of for reference of why they're they're doing this. Um, so, one loan product, this is an LTV to CAC, but variable profit to CAC, so consumer acquisition cost, gives them about two times. But when they cross out with another loan product or any other other product that at 10 axes. So there's a very high incentive for them to, to cross sell. So they're really trying to kind of win the consumer over at, at every turn, which again is sounds eerily similar to Lemonade. So that's the B2C arm. And then to answer your second question, and this is, I guess, my, my, my absolute favorite part of the company uh, is the business to business arm, which is what, what they acquired in April of 2020. Uh, the deal was a little bit over a billion dollars. I don't know the exact number. But it was uh, they, they bought Galileo, which provides fintech application programming interfaces or APIs 
for customers like Revolut and Chime and Robinhood. Uh, so I, it's not really ideal that my favorite piece of the company was purchased. Um, that's, that kind of makes me a little uncomfortable, but it was, it was a, an, an organization and an asset base that I kind of had on my radar whenever they did hopefully go public eventually on their own. So when SoFi merged with them and then went, went public, that kind of really caught my interest. So for reference of what they kind of bring to the table, and this is from Chamath's um, investor presentation, and I haven't been able to verify it in another source, but 90% they're saying of new neobank accounts are powered by a Galileo API. So so they are, they're, they're really dominating the B2B arm and then also trying to have this one-stop shop in the B2C arm. So that's that's kind of SoFi in a nutshell. Okay, that's a good overview. And what do the financials look like? How are the margins? I know a lot of people might cons- you know, consider it as bank-like, uh, but there's not really anyone to compare it to. Uh, so you know, it's kind of a wild guess on our end what the margins are. Yeah, I guess the, the closest comps would probably be whatever. I, I don't own Square, so I, I'm not I'm not super familiar with how they disclose Cash App, but whatever the financials look like there, I think would be a good comparison. But for fortunately for our sake in their investor presentation, they kind of split up financials by revenue segment um, pretty nicely. So lending, uh, which is their most mature segment. So this is the loan refinancing and, and the loan issuance. We'll, we'll have a, they're, they're anticipating a 25% annual growth rate through 2025 with 58% contribution margins. Their fin services or, or digital banking segment, 153% annual growth through 2025. And, I quote this on path to profitability. Um, so negative contribution margin margins, I take that as currently. And then Galileo, which is 55% compound annual growth rate through 2025 and 62% contribution margin. So they put this all together and they're expecting to grow at 43% through the year 2025. Um, and, and kind of looking at profitability from there, uh, they're, they're looking to, sorry, let me just scroll through my notes real quick. Expecting even margins. Okay, so they're expecting even margins to inflect this year from negative ten percent to three percent, and, and their 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 forecasts are pretty ambitious, as you, as you kind of see with a lot of SPACs. Um, so they're forecasting that forty three percent growth rate to get to two point one billion sales in twenty twenty three, with twenty three percent EBITDA margins, a ten percent gap profit margin, and then continue thirty five percent growth for the foreseeable future thereafter. So the margins are kind of like I, I mentioned or talked about earlier, heading quickly in the right direction. Um, and they're anticipating a pretty large bump in revenue growth. So this is important to, to note, I think. They're coming off of 38% revenue growth last year, I guess, um, for 2020. And they're expecting that to, to jump up to 58% as Galileo and digital banking kind of takes over a larger piece of the pie for the revenue, um, kind of the revenue makeup and their lending mature segment d- diminishes in size. So there's a lot to prove here, um, I think. And, and I, I posted on Twitter about this and I said this was kind of like a, a buy with a very short leash. They, they need that 20% bump in revenue growth to happen. They need this margin inflection to happen for me to continue being a long-term shareholder. But if they do, then I think there's pretty intriguing upside from here. Okay. I have a concerning question for you. They, I believe they uh, sponsor a stadium. Is that a red flag? Because I think <laughs> stadium sponsors always do poorly. Or at least um, <laughs> yeah. So to, to quote the great Michael Scott, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. Um, and yeah, I, I guess uh, the sofa, what is it? The Rams? Or so it's the LA Rams. Yeah. The new big stadium down there. It's a cool looking stadium. 
yeah, uh, gotta, but it is sponsored by cover that up or something. Um, but, but yeah. Uh, what about, uh, do you think, do you think they're going to be able to take customers from traditional banks? Cause Brad and I have had this discussion on here about cash app, um, being able to take customers away from just traditional banking products. Cause it always sounds good in theory, but it's much harder in practice. Uh, I mean, do you think it's feasible for them? Yeah. So I think that's, that's why they're obsessed with, with doing everything with doing the loans and the investing and the money products and, and the refinancing um, and, and everything you could possibly think of, there'll be more products in the future. Uh, so kind of to give you a couple statistics. Uh, so 50% of consumers that they're surveying of tens of thousands of people have multiple bank accounts with 80% of those consumers saying they do so because there is no one-stop shop to fit all these needs. So I think the combination of a, a pretty sleek user interface and and being this complete suite of tools, uh, I, I think is a pretty powerful one-two punch of value creation that that I will that I do think will allow them to continue user growth pretty quickly. I mean, they're what are they at today? 1.7 million, supposed to grow 75% year over year to 3 million. So they're again, their forecasts are pretty ambitious and they have a lot left to prove, and there's no guarantee that happens, but but they're their user growth has accelerated six quarters in a row. So there is a little credibility there. And so they are winning over new users and and hopefully that continues, but I'll definitely be on the lookout for that. Okay. You kind of answered my next question. So I'll skip to the next one here, but what about this being a SPAC structure? And it's kind of interesting that we do this. Uh, I asked this question today because this is uh, the day that the Clover SPAC, the Clover health thing had the short report come out. And so uh, I guess it's maybe, yeah maybe there's a little more scrutiny now. Does it worry you at all? Do you have any concerns that it wasn't sort of traditional public offering or direct listing or anything like that? Sure. So yeah, good timing on the the Clover Health deal, which was also Chamath. So definitely relevant to this conversation. Uh, so being a SPAC, I guess it's not, it's definitely not a deal breaker to me. I own three, this butterfly or LGBW and then tattooed chef, which is post-merger. Oh, and then curiosity stream. So I own four. Um, but it, it does raise the bar uh, for sure. And it does shorten the leash for sure. Because you, you don't see IPOs giving you revenue guidance for 2025. And, and that's, that's a lot of how these companies are driving interest and, in, and, in, and in picking up shareholders. So the emphasis on the short leash, um, it, it's important to take these long-term forecasts with a grain of salt, I think. And it's really important to understand that, the, that a lot of them are not going to come to fruition. And as soon as they don't, it's it's kind of time to move on um, for me personally. So I am a very long-term investor until a company gives me a reason uh, not to be. Um, so so I think kind of, I, I guess, an example, fortunately, I wasn't a shareholder, but a, a Nicola incident or something like that is, is a lot more common with SPACs than IPOs. So just keeping that that leash really short and and continuing to stay up to date with all the filings and making sure status quo is still status quo um, is even more important, I think, with a SPAC than an IPO. And also, I think it's, final note, really important to take valuation with diluted share count. Um, so these companies will put valuation slides in their investor presentations based on $10 a share and based on pro forma share count. And then in the very fine print on the bottom of these slides, they'll say this excludes tens of millions of public warrants and um, options and all this um, fun stuff and, and pipes. Um, and, and that that really should be considered because all of those will be exercised at some point. So just kind of making sure that you're watching them really closely and making sure you're 
you're operating with the right valuation in mind, I think is important. Do you cap your position size on any SPACs until they've had some time in the public markets and had to like file SEC filings or are you kind of letting them go? Yeah. So the SPACs, I, all, all four of them are, are definitely in that young speculative disruptive bucket. So they all got the 1% cost basis up front. Um, actually, LGVW got slightly less because I also own ArcG, which has um, some LGV, some butterfly exposure. So I had to kind of um, consider that, but, but typically go with the 1% and dollar cost average up to 2%, like I do with the other um, companies in that bucket. Okay. Um, anything else on SoFi, Ryan? No, I think that answers all my questions. Okay. Well, we'll hit the wrap-ups then uh, to get things out of here. I know uh, we're all not that experienced, so these questions will be a little bit different. Uh, but I guess I'll ask this one first. What's one financial saying that you disagree with? For sure. So I guess um, maybe not financial. Well, kind of a financial saying of 2020 and 2021 is that stocks or stonks only go up. And I just want to emphasize to, I guess, the anyone on here who, who finds any validity in that saying that no, stocks do not only go up. Um, and, and yeah, so just keep, keep that in mind that stocks are roller coasters and, and have to kind of endure that price of admission is volatility, a lot of people like to say. Um, and, I, and I do really agree with that. Right. Yeah. And all SPACs can't go up all the time. They're not just <laughs> money printers. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy that we got to say that. But all right, last question. Uh, and I guess you're you're early on in your career, but what is one piece of advice you'd give to anyone else pursuing a career in investing? For sure. And I am very emphasis on early on in the career. So um, for anyone listening who doesn't want to take advice from me, that's, that's totally fair. Um, but I, I would go with uh, do not borrow conviction. Um, kind of put in the work, have, have that have that three bullet point or five bullet point thesis of why you own the company. Make sure that that those reasons are intact through quarterly earnings reports and investor presentations, but but put in the work to have that conviction. Because when these 30 and 40% pullbacks happen, like with a lot of the companies I own, um, and, and it's inevitable that they will happen in the future, uh, the only thing that's going to keep you in those companies and the only thing that's going to kind of motivate you to buy more is your personal conviction, not not somebody else on Twitter who told you to buy it 50% higher, who's saying hold the line or, or buy the dip, but, but your own your own research and your own conviction. Right, that's the financial saying I disagree with is hold the line. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, That one has become popular in the last two weeks, but that is important to have those points either written down or understanding why you own something because the price action or whatever does happen can like make you psychologically like, uh, I don't know what the word is, but you know, there's gotta be some psychological term for that. But you know, sure. if there is that 30% dip or something and the the reason you own it hasn't changed, then you can have confidence in, you know, adding more to that company. For sure. For sure. Well said. Okay. Uh, I think that's going to do it. That's all our questions. Thank you, Brad, for coming on the show. Where, uh, or oh, lastly, yeah. where can people find you? Uh, I know on the Motley Fool and stuff like that, but any of your personal stuff. Yeah, so the Twitter handle is, is pretty much where I exist. Uh, stock market nerd um, sounds how it's spelled, and and no spaces or dashes or anything. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Again, congratulations on the new the new I get the new fund that you guys are starting. Um, yep. Exciting stuff. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for coming on, Brad. Thanks, Brad.
All right, welcome back in. Thanks again to Brad for coming on the show. Next up, we have Hot Water. Uh, we know this episode's going a little bit long, so we're trying to speed it up. Do you want to go first? I only have two, so. Uh, I have two as well. All right, first one is individual restaurants. Now, I think I'm okay then. You didn't take mine. <laughs> Good, and then the next one is something about, let's do a little spoiler here. Oh, got a grant, something weird. All right. Uh, okay, go ahead. The individual restaurants, uh, if you're looking at... Okay, say you're watching the Super Bowl, you're an individual restaurant, and all you're doing is takeout right now. Like, you, how mad would you be if you're seeing these delivery apps? You know, gate gouge your whatever. How, how do you call it? Gouge. Gouge your eyes out. Thank you for thirty percent fees, and then they end up spending five million dollars on a Super Bowl commercial, telling the world to support local restaurants by using their app. I mean, I think that's insanity. Like you saw DoorDash and Uber Eats do it. I I don't know. I mean, I try not to use these delivery apps because unless it's for fast food or something, you know? I have heard though the flip side of it. I have heard other like like case uh, case studies case where studies. it really helped the business. Um, and they can usually pass along a portion of that fee to the customer. Yeah. So, that's true. I don't know. And – it's easy. It's so easy to criticize Uber and any of the food delivery places, but if it is helping business, like if it's increasing volume, then maybe the take rate, whatever, you're getting a smaller slice of a much bigger pie. Maybe. Ma- I think. Yeah, the, I, I think a lot of. I don't know from the stuff I've read. I used sounds. To, like, I used to be in that camp, but I I started to see a lot of other case studies. Hmm, maybe I need to look at that. But if you're doing ten percent operating margins at a restaurant, and then a res- uh, delivery fee comes in at fifteen percent, I don't know. It seems a little weird. But to if me. it was so bad for these restaurants, why would they let them? They do have it? no choice. They have no choice. That's not true. Well, Curbside pickup, you could do your own. I mean, a lot of these uh, restaurant softwares are allowing for that. Square rolled it out in like a week after COVID. So well, they got no volume on that. Okay, but I mean, there's other ways. If it, but you're saying that you're getting more sales because of these things, right? Yeah, yeah, but it's like negative margin. <laughs> well, you can pass that price through to the consumer. Potentially, I don't know. Unless I'm using fast food, I never use. I can't use the delivery apps. I mean, why not? Why would you just look? If you can have, I, you can either give all the margin to the restaurant, or you can give ten percent of it to. Uber Eats, I'd rather give it to the restaurant. Yeah, I mean, I like going to restaurants, so I usually just go and sit down if I can. So it doesn't well, really matter. Well, just to me, if you're getting if you're getting pickup, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I just uh, I started to hear a lot of other stories about it. Maybe we're not the ones to talk about it. What's your second one? Okay, this is a funny one. Uh, all right, so there's this guy. It was probably a viral tweet, but I thought it was pretty funny looking at someone starting up like a YouTube channel. Uh, so there is, I have no idea what form this on. It looks like the dark web on this little thing. But he said, I just got released from prison for four years, robbed a bank, but pleaded aggravated assault. Just getting out. What do I do? And this guy, user 81900 famous user, we all know him. He said, one, start a YouTube channel. Two, first video, you sit in front of a high-quality camera looking presentable. One, half the screen is going to show a video game. Title of the video, Real Bank Robber, all caps, critiques GTA 5 Bank Heist Mission. This is sounding pretty good, right? 
says four, you're going to commentate over the GTA 5 intro, pause every now and then and say, back when I hit the bank, the cops were on us much quicker, do a little commentary. Before you know it, you're at 350,000 subs and growing, and all you do is talking to a camera about prison, and you make all the more, you make so much more money than the rest of us, and apparently this actually happened, and there's this video, Formal Jewel Thief Reviews GTA 5 Jewel Heist. Uh, which I thought was funny. It has like a million views. So I would, yeah. That's capitalism work right there. I think I saw that actually. Uh, I didn't watch the video, but I saw a tweet of it. It's, yeah, that's <laughs> that's funny. Okay, um, hot water for me. Oatly's in hot water. Uh, I think they win uh, prize for the most tone deaf commercial ever. You don't uh, think it was on purpose, dude? I guarantee the marketing team came up with something different, and the CEO was like, "No, no, no." I'm gonna sing. People want to see me sing. No, I think field. they. No, they, they. This happens every year. Someone makes a bad commercial on purpose so people like us talk about it. This is not. This is not Peloton. This is. I think it is. Oatly. And oh, I know it's a bad. Bad. I think their valuation probably lost fifty percent. Oh, they're spacking horrible it. commercial. They're spacking at ten billion. Oh yeah, I mean, I'll agree. The commercial was not worth it because it's a commodity product. Like, I'm not buying their oat milk because of that. But I'm just telling you the theory behind it. I don't think they did not make that commercial in good faith that it was like quality. They made it. They wanted to make it bad on purpose. I I think I, I think the marketing team was probably at odds with this. Uh, I, I don't think they wanted to run this commercial, and it wasn't up mm, to them. Maybe, maybe uh, there's definitely some. You could probably see in the in the inner or whatever the executive teams were probably where I don't know whose side was on who, but there's probably a lot of conflict or debate. Second, uh, second hot water for me is Par Technology. The CEO Savneet oh. Singh, who we both think quite highly of, actually said in a tweet, uh, "Should I start doing my conference calls on Clubhouse?" Ah, dang. I'm not sure if this is sarcastic or not, sarcastic or not, but it feels like a red flag. Also, <laughs> what the hell is Clubhouse? I hear it every day, and I don't know what it is. Isn't well, you it can like get invite on, only. Yeah, you can get on there because it's iPhone only. Uh, but I haven't been. I thought it was invite. Yeah, talk to like I think Irish investor had like some invites. You can you can reach out to some people, find it's it. Brilliant, like, actually, because I feel excluded. Yeah, the entire uh, marketing strategy is FOMO. <laughs> uh, it sounds like it, but it doesn't sound that fun. You just kind of listen to what VCs talk and pontificate. I don't know. It doesn't sound very fun. Okay, uh, but uh, what was I going to say? Oh, a lot of people that are older have been saying that it's just radio on the internet. From the thing that Mark Cuban made. Uh, so we'll see if that actually ends up like that. ROI. Who knows? ROI, yes. And uh, we'll see if they get bought up by, like, for like $4 billion from a big tech company. Uh, that could be the end goal. And then it just gets written down forever and the, the founders cash out and become a uh, sports, it was sports not, owner. It was not. It was $4 billion. Yeah, but Yahoo bought Mark, Mark Cuban, uh, it wasn't just radio on the internet. I thought it was like a sports live stream thing. Mm, uh, I thought the radio on the internet was Silicon Valley's make fun of him version. No, no, radio on the internet. Mark Cuban came up with that, I'm pretty sure. Or maybe, yeah, yeah. Broadcast.com, internet radio company, founded as AudioNet in September 1995, bought a Yahoo for like $4 billion. 5.7, actually, wow. Good for him. Good. Bad for Yahoo. Buy, sell, hold. The theme this week is companies that advertise during the Super Bowl, Pepsi, Nintendo, Robinhood. Well, you know us. Uh, disclosure, we own we own Nintendo, so I got to say, buying Nintendo. Uh, Robinhood will be the sell. I think they are worth $0. They're, 
I don't know. Yeah. I'm sorry. We've discussed this before. Uh, and this was even before the whole debacle. And what was the other one? Pepsi? Yeah. Hold Pepsi? Yeah. I mean, that seems one of, that seems like a permanent business right there. Okay. Uh, anecdotal evidence for the week. Uh, I'm moving. Um, I guess. Yeah, when are you? When are you moving? Uh, moving date is moving in, I don't know, probably two weeks. Two weeks? All right. Well, I hope. Moving sucks. I just finished, but it it does suck. But, uh, I think there is definitely room for someone to replace apartments.com. Like, there should be a better. Apartments.com sucks. Rentals site. There should be more like a Zillow for rentals. And I'm sure there is, but I did not find a great one. And there was nothing that was really helping that much. So your experience on apartments.com was not great. No. It was pretty buggy. Yeah, it was pretty buggy for me. Yeah. I mean, the, the interface was terrible. Like, it was almost like I couldn't use it anymore. And also, every single price or whatever just said contact for details. Like, yeah. What's the point of that? No, it's not. Yeah, the apartment searching experience is nowhere near as good as the Zillow home searching experience. Yeah. For sure. I just think that's an area that's ripe for disruption. <laughs> ripe for disruption. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're becoming a VC every day. <laughs> All right. What do you have? Uh, okay. Did you read Kathy Wood's Day in the Life article? No. No? Didn't, nothing really special there, but I kind of thought, again, like, there's, nothing, there's no difference really between someone that has... A ten billion, or shoot, they're probably on pace for a hundred billion dollars in assets under management. They're not doing anything different. They're like, she's like, yeah, I go on Zoom calls, and I we do some research with the team, and that's it. But right now, she's riding high. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't. I've never thought like those CEO day in the life things were gonna be so spectacular. People were like, like Bezos released his. It was like I wake up at like seven. I have breakfast. Oh, well, what about kids. Mark Wahlberg's? Is there okay. a that one? That and one's fake. I mean, that only, one's fake. Okay, that the only fake. people that have absurd daily schedules have posted them because they know they're absurd. Yeah. They just, they're doing it to demonstrate how hard-willed or disciplined mm-hmm. they are, but in reality, it's just a lack of sleep. Yeah. I mean, you, everyone goes through that phase where they look up those motivational videos on YouTube, and then you, like, look back a few years, and you're like, ah, I mean, those weren't really, they're kind of dumb. Yeah. Yeah. I but I mean, if they help you get motivated, I don't know. But you, you know what I mean? Everyone kind of goes through that. You find those videos. Yeah. I don't. The people that wake, the people that work out before 5 a.m., man, those are the ones <laughs> that I don't. It yeah. makes no difference when you, like. It doesn't matter when you work, work out. out at 8 a.m. It doesn't matter. Just, I don't like, I don't like waking up to my day knowing that I just have to wake up with struggle. Yeah. Well, if you want some examples of successful people that don't do that, Tom Brady gets nine hours of sleep and wakes up at like six and doesn't, you know, he tries to get nine hours of sleep and Bezos doesn't set an alarm or that's kind of the story he tells. So, I mean, you don't, it, uh, that stuff is ridiculous. Yeah. Or like, I don't know, uh, or people that talk about the little sleep stuff, you know, like, oh, dude, when this thing happened, I researched this company all night. And if you do that, that's fine. I'm just telling you, if I am getting four hours of sleep a night, I'm not operating I want, I want seven to nine, at least. Yeah, yeah great. All right. I think that's going to do it, right? Uh, okay. I had one more. This is simple. Moving into my new apartment. Got a TV. Had to be Roku. I think the business is going to continue doing fine. Um, but that's, <laughs> that's just me. That's, that's, I swear, every person's like, this Roku stuff's such bullshit. And then they're like, they get a Roku. They're like, this could really be something. Yeah. 
Well, I saw that. I mean, when I used to come over to your old apartment, I was like, oh, this thing is this thing is better for sure. Now the stock, on the other hand, yeah, uh, that stuff might be priced in now, but yeah, yeah, okay, thirty six well, times sales. Oof. Okay, Tough. well, that's gonna do it. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, thank we, you to Brad Freeman. Oh yeah, thank you, Brad, for coming on the show. And we run Arch Capital now, so anything we say might be. Uh, Holding. Oh, you want to be, yeah. We, but we're not financial advisors. Don't take what we say as advice. Anyone that's on the show <laughs> might have, or LPs might have positions uh, in the companies discussed. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time.